Listen to the words of Christ. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Any passage of Scripture that depicts the final judgment of the lost is terrifying just for the reality of that judgment. And there are many such passages in Scripture. So it's not the reality of judgment that sets Matthew 7, 21-23 apart from all of those other passages as I think the most terrifying and most tragic passage of Scripture that, that we have. There's this there is another dimension beyond just the reality of the judgment. In my thinking, it's, I think it's safe to say that there is another level to the tragedy of being cast into hell when you've been thinking all along that you were going to be crowned in heaven. I know you could say, don't they both end up in the judgment of hell, yes, that's true. But I think there's a difference between thinking you are going to be crowned in heaven and going into hell with your eyes wide open, knowing all along that you weren't right with the God that you were standing before. But there will be many, Jesus says, in that day who will be shocked to realize that Jesus never knew them. And so God who is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, has given us in the Bible many warnings, like Matthew 7, 21-23, many commands throughout Scripture to examine ourselves, and many passages, like the one before us today, in which we are called to test ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith or not. Now, we've been going through 1 John for a while now. This is not the first time that we have come to a test of our faith. I don't know if you've tested yourself yet or not. But if you don't do this today, if you don't test yourself and measure your heart and your life and your soul against the standard of the Word of God, you're missing the point. You're not, you're not going with the intent of Scripture. So test yourselves. We must test ourselves. But we, we can say that God has put so many warnings and so many tests in Scripture that no one who stands before God one day will ever be able to blame so much deception on their part on too little revelation. God has given us plenty of revelation to warn and to test Let's read this passage of Scripture, 1 John chapter 3, 4 to 10. John writes, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. 
No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Let me stop right there. I'm just, I just want to point out how strong this language is. You don't get much more strong than this. But we must take the word of God for what it says. Little children, verse 7, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we need your help today. I know with a passage like this in your word that is so strong, so clear, there's it is just so plain. Satan is going to be working overtime to steal away the seed of the word of God. And I pray that no heart would be like that hardened path that Jesus described in the book of Matthew, where the seed falls and the birds, that is Satan, steals away the seed of the word of God before there is any kind of understanding or faith. Pray that no heart here would be like that, hardened, calloused, unbelieving, or just off in another world, daydreaming. Pray, Father, that our attention would be riveted on your truth. We would give to you not only our minds, but our hearts would be submitted to you as well. I pray, Father, that you would give to me your Holy Spirit, that as I proclaim your word, every word from my mouth would honor you and would be true to what you have said. Father, my own heart, my aim would be your glory and your people's good. Would you do that? Bring your name glory and give us your good. Give us your grace. Help us all to test ourselves and trust in Jesus alone. In his name I pray. I want to take a moment just to go over the context of 1 John. We were not in this passage. We were not in this letter last week. We took a break for Easter Sunday. Let me review the context with you real quick and so we can set up where we are today. The Apostle John wrote this letter to several churches. This was a circular letter. For what reason? He wrote that we would be assured of what we know in the gospel and would continue to abide in Jesus. Assurance and abiding. That's why John wrote. Now, what prompted the letter was that certain people within these churches had defected. They had turned apostate. And when they left the church, John pointed out, they went out from us because they weren't of us to begin with. But then those people, these apostate defectors, were going to try their hand at leading others astray. And that's why John wrote. 
He wrote so that the believers would be assured of what they believe and they would continue to abide in Christ. And by the movement of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Spirit of God, John drew up a series of tests that served a dual purpose. The tests would assure the believers and would exhort them in their relationship with God, as we've already mentioned. And at the same time, the tests would expose these apostate defectors, these unbelievers, for who they were. So John drew up a series of tests, again, to encourage believers and to expose the false teachers. Now, there were three tests. There's a moral test, there is a relational test, and there's a doctrinal test. The moral test, and we're looking at the third of these moral tests today, in verses 4 to 10, the moral test concerns our obedience to God's commandments. The relational test concerns our love for God's people. And the doctrinal test concerns our faith in God's Son. Now, it, it won't surprise you, for those of you who have been here throughout this series, that we are here in verses 4 to 10 taking this moral test for the third time. Because we've talked about quite a bit how repetitive John is. We, we looked at this test. We took this moral test in chapter 1. Let me just read a verse. He said, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That was the first moral test. The second moral test came in chapter 2, where John said, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. It is very, very clear. And uh, I, I want to point out before we go any further, I pray that all of us in Alds Chapel pass these tests. You have to pass all three tests if you are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to pass the faith test and the obedience test and the love test have to pass all three. But please, if you take these tests honestly and you find that you do pass them, which if you are a believer, you will pass these tests, do not turn to putting your hope in these tests. Okay? Don't trust in your past. Trust in Christ. Let no one stand before the bar of God's judgment one day and hear Him say, why should I let you into my kingdom? Who then responds, well, look at 1 John. Look at the tests. I passed the tests. Never trust in your past. Trust in Jesus. He alone is our hope to be saved. And it's not a requirement that we pass this moral test or the love test to be saved. It's not a requirement. But it's the result of being saved that we pass these tests. There must be in your minds a very clear distinction on that point. I pass because I have been saved. I do not pass in order to be saved. Maintain that distinction. It's very important. Now, 1 John 3, verses 4 to 10, again, is the third time that we take this moral test, and it's a two-parter. There are four points to each part, and again, it's not going to surprise you that the second part basically repeats the first part. 
I want you to be thankful that John is so repetitive. Is anybody here spiritually slow? Slow to get it? Is anyone here uh, guilty of daydreaming during sermons? Anybody <laughs> saw that? Right? Is anybody prone to make the same mistakes twice? Then we need repetition. Deception dies a slow death. That's why John repeats himself over and over again. So we should be thankful that he does repeat himself. Let's begin with part one. And this is point one from verse four. John says, you know what, before I go any further, I'm going to give you a little outline. I'm going to give you an overview of this because I might not get so clear through the rest of this message. Okay, I'm going to go through every point and I want you to see the connections between part one and, and part two. This is where, what we're going to go over. Part 1.1 in verse 4 concerns the nature of sin. Part 1.2 in the beginning of verse 8, you could be looking down at your Bibles as I go over this, concerns the nature of the sinner. Point 2.1 part one, in verse 5 talks about that Christ came against sin. Point 2.2 part two, in the second part of verse 8 says that Christ came against the devil. Point three, part one, in verse six, talks about the incompatibility of abiding in Jesus and keeping on sinning. Point three, part two, of verse nine, talks about the impossibility of being born of God and making a practice of sinning. So you can, you're seeing through this how the second part repeats and intensifies the first part. And then point four, part one of verse seven says that the one who practices righteousness is like Jesus. Point four, part two, verse 10 says the one who doesn't practice righteousness is not only not like him, but is not of him. So you could kind of think of it like this. We're going two rounds with the apostle John and he is going to land four kinds of punches. In round one, he's going to hit us pretty hard. But in round two, while he lands the same kinds of punches, it's like uh, he really lays it on us in, in round two. Okay, so you could kind of think of it like that. Now back to verse four. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin, what is the nature of sin? Sin is lawlessness. Don't make the mistake of thinking that your sin is something more respectable than what it is. Don't call it a bad habit. Don't say it's your own personal issue or personal demons even, your personal hang-up, or just say, well, this is just who I am. So many people today in our world want to say, I was born this way. So who am I to... Yeah. Who is God to require that you deny yourself? Let's not call our sins something more respectable than what they are. John says sin is lawlessness. What does this mean? Sin is exchanging a truth, the truth of God, for a lie. Sin is exchanging the glory of the Creator 
to worship the creation. Sin is not just doing your own thing. It's crowning your own head. It's setting up a rival throne in a rival kingdom. It's to quote from or paraphrase D.A. Carson, it is to de-God God and God yourself. To take the name of God for yourself. That's what sin is. It's lawlessness. How is it that we have such a low view of sin? Because we have a low view of God. If sin is not a big deal to you, I'll tell you why. It's because God is not a big deal to you. That's it. Sin is lawlessness. And if, if sin is no big deal, what does that say about the cross? Well, man, it looks, look, looks like things just happen to get out of hand for Jesus. That's not the way it, it was. The cross was so bad for Jesus because sin is so bad of us. That's why his suffering was so bad. That's the seriousness of sin. And that's John's point. How can anyone who is a believer make a practice of lawlessness? Now as we go over this, I'm going to come back and back again and again to uh, when John talks about keeping on sinning and when he talks about making a practice of sinning, he's talking about the course of your life. Is the course of your life in the way of sin? Is it smooth sailing in the current of sin? And if, if that's you, John says, you're not passing the test. You can't be a believer if the way of your life is the current of sin and it's smooth sailing. We'll talk about this more. But I want you to just, I'm going to get at it now because some of you here have a very fragile conscience. And, and you need to hear that when John says he's making a practice of sinning, he's talking about the course of your life. We'll talk about it more as we progress. So what is the nature of sin? It is lawlessness. Verse 5. This is the second point of part 1. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So what would Jesus do with this lawlessness? He would take it away. That's what he did when he came. He came to take away sin. This is one of about three, this is one of about three dozen times that John reminds believers of what they know in the gospel. And that's why I say that John wrote that we would be reassured, we'd be, or just assured of what we know in the gospel. Because he says it over and over again, you know this. You know the truth. Don't listen to the false teachers. You know what is right and you know what is true. So he says, one thing that you know is that Jesus appeared to take away sins. That's why he came. I tell you over and over and over again, we don't move on from the gospel. Would you resist sin? Then remain under the shadow of the cross. Would you make your stand against sin? then take your stand at the cross. John is saying, if you truly know and have received for yourself the purpose for which Jesus came, He came to take away sin, how could you continue in it? Think of it like this. We stood in the dock 
that is, the defendant's dock in a courtroom, the accused. Our crimes are read against us. The evidence is irrefutable. Our mouths are stopped before God. We are found guilty. And the judge passes the sentence. Death. But then the son of the judge steps in in step with his father's will and is led away out of the city to be crucified for us, to become our Savior. Everyone who knows that, I mean truly, spiritually knows that for themselves, who has received that, him by faith will not continue in sin. And that's why John goes on in point three of part one, verse six. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. You can't be rightly related to Jesus and cozy up next to sin. You can't stay close to Jesus and stay close to sin. There's an incompatibility there. It's, it doesn't make any sense. And then he says at the end of verse 6, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 3 for a moment. In verse 1, John said, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That's a command, not just an invitation. It's a command. See the love of God in Christ that God has given to us. Then he says in verse 6, no one who keeps on sinning has seen him or known him. I think that this is the difference between mental assent, I get it, acceptance of the gospel facts, and truly having that saving sight and saving knowledge of God in Christ. This is the difference. Anyone who has truly seen the love of God in Jesus will find that love to be irresistible. So if someone says, I've seen the Lord, I've seen his love, don't tell me that I haven't seen, I have seen him and I admire him. I just don't want to be like him. Then you haven't seen him. Because the one who has seen the love of God in Jesus will be drawn to Christ. To become like Christ. So abiding in sin, and abiding in Christ, I mean, and getting cozy with sin is incompatible. Now, point four, part one. Little children, and John is pleading here, let no one deceive you. This shows us there were false teachers rampant with their deception. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Man, we have a big problem with this in the church today. Many of you grew up in the same kind of evangelicalism that I did. It was the age of easy decisionism. And the day that easy decisionism dies, hallelujah to God. You know, it's the whole... Raise your hand, walk the aisle, pray a prayer, ask Jesus into your life, and if you meant it, 
Your ticket is punched. Now, there's some truth to some of that. But it's what we call reductionist. It's not enough. Where is the call to repentance? Where is the call of Jesus to count the cost, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow Him? If there is someone here who is not a believer, I want to tell you straight, but I, I say this, I say this with gladness of heart. I'm going to just put it straight to you as Jesus did. If you are not a Christian and you want to be one, you want to become a follower of Jesus, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost. There will be sacrifice required. You will have to take up your cross. There's a cost to following Jesus. But the cost is worth it infinitely worth it so that it doesn't matter what it costs you. Jesus is worth it. Even if it would cost you your life, Christ is gain, as Paul said in Philippians 1. To me, to live is Christ. To die is gain because that means I'm just going to Jesus. There is a cost to following Christ, but it's worth it. Paul wrote in Romans 8, I referenced this in our Sunday school class this morning. Paul said, we will be glorified with him provided we suffer with him. When you get as reductionist as easy decisionism, what do you end up with? You end up with a lot of people who are going to fit into Matthew 7, 21 to 23, who will stand before God and say, Lord, Lord. And who will end up hearing, I never knew you. You end up with churches even, full of false converts. And a, a Bible belt that has communities full of false converts who thought they had their ticket punched, who thought that they were good to go, but will stand before God and find out that they were deceived says the one who practices righteousness as he is, is righteous. And that doesn't mean just moralism. You know, I'm, a, I'm an upstanding guy. I'm a good neighbor. I give to charity. You need me to help you out, I'll help you out. Give you the shirt off my back kind of thing. We're not talking about moralism. We're talking about Jesus kind of righteousness, which is righteousness from the heart. It's God-seeking righteousness. It is Loving God's people righteousness. That's from the heart. That's the result of being saved. John said, let no one deceive you. Okay, so that's round one. John lands four punches. Quick review. The nature of sin is that it's lawlessness. Christ came to take that sin away. You cannot abide in this Jesus who came to take sin away and cozy up next to sin. You can't stay in Jesus and stay in sin. And the one who practices righteousness is the one who is truly like him. Now we come to round two. So round two, point one, lands the same kind of punch as round one, point one, but it's heavier. It lands, it's, it's heavier. Man, John 
does not hold back. And I, I feel, I was talking to a friend at uh, this recent conference that I went to with uh, Ryan and Jacob. There was a buddy I had there that I had gone to college with. And we were talking about hell. Um, the message we had just heard had to do with pleading for sinners to come to Christ. And uh, there was a lot of talk in there about the judgment, about hell, and, and how we, we kind of, we tone things down a little bit. And I know that I have been guilty of this, toning things down. And you think, and you might be thinking, Brother Mike, you're pretty plain. You step on people's toes. But I, you know, sometimes I will say, the result of not believing in Jesus in this life will, will be eternal separation from God and eternal subjection to his wrath. And we talk about that separation a lot. But the Bible is even more plain. The Bible is even more vivid in its description of the judgment than that. Look at what John says. He's talked about the nature of sin in verse 4. Now he wants to talk about the nature of the sinner. This is why the punch lands even heavier. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. We talked about what sin is. This is who the sinner is now. That person is of the devil. Now I want to point something out that's really important. Notice the time reference here. The devil is the author of sin who sinned from the beginning. That means his course has always been sin. And that's why I say that the person who sins indefinitely, and I'm going to also throw in the, word, the adverb indifferently, is not a believer. If it's smooth sailing in sin, on and on and on, without letting up, that person is not a believer. Now, when you stick it to your conscience with sin, does your conscience bite back? Fine if it does. Good. But the Bible actually requires more. Because the world is full of people. In fact, I would say this is, this is probably 99.99% of people feel shame and regret and guilt in their life at some point. So it's not enough that your conscience screams out. Everybody feels shame and regret. The Bible talks about worldly sorrow on one hand, which ends up in, which leads to death, and godly sorrow or godly grief, this is from 2 Corinthians, on the other hand. So that the person who is a believer will not just feel bad about letting themselves down. I mean, that's how the world talks these days. I feel so bad. Because I let myself down. I fell short of my own standards. The Bible, to paraphrase, basically says, who cares? Who cares about your standard? What you've done against yourself. And that's why people, so don't fall into this trap of language, talk about forgiving themselves. I let myself down, therefore I must forgive myself. The Bible never says we need to forgive ourselves. We need God's forgiveness. Because it's God's standard that we have fallen short of. It's him that we have offended. Do you remember what you remember what David did? David committed adultery. David covered that up with the murder of the husband of the woman she had, he had committed adultery with. But when he was confronted with his sin by Nathan the prophet, 
What did he say? He said, I have sinned against the Lord. And when he wrote out his confession in Psalm 51, what did he say? He said, against you, you only have I done this evil. He was concerned with how he had broken God's commandment. Or think about Joseph when he is tempted by uh, uh, Potiphar's wife in the household. She says, come, lie, lie with me. What does he say? Well, I, I couldn't. I have higher standards. Now, I would just I'd be falling short of my ideals for myself. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, how could I do this great wickedness against Potiphar, who's been so kind to me? He doesn't say that. He says, how could I do this great wickedness against God? That's the believer's concern. Not how I have displeased myself but how I have offended the God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's godly sorrow as opposed to worldly sorrow. Let's move on. Now we're in the latter part of verse 8. So this is point 2 of part 2. In part 1, John wrote that Christ appeared to take away sins. Now he says in the end of verse 8, Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil. If I live my life celebrating what Jesus came to destroy, whose side am I on? This should not be confusing to us, but it is. But I want to show you just how off that, that thinking is that you know we'd wonder. I'm not sure. You remember when 9-11 happened? That in response to this tragedy, all of America went into mourning. And what was so sickening was to see this video coming back from certain parts of the Muslim Middle East of some people, not all, keep that in mind, but some people out in the streets dancing and celebrating that this kind of thing happened to us. Now, watching that video footage, did anybody wonder, hmm, are they for us or against us? You know, whose side are they on? I'm kind of confused. It's the same way in the spiritual life. If we are celebrating what Jesus came to destroy, if that's our life, we're not His. We're not on His side. We're against Him. It's the same kind of principle. We should not be confused on this point. Let's go to point three from verse nine. Point three, part two. In part one, John said that if you're going to stay in Jesus, that's incompatible with staying in sin. That was verse six. Now he intensifies it and he says it's in fact impossible, not just incompatible to keep on sinning. It's impossible for the person who's been born of God to keep on sinning. Let's read it. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Man, that is so plain. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot, there's the impossibility part, he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. He cannot keep on sinning. That, that is, it's not going to be the course of his life. He's not going to sin indefinitely 
indifferently. Let's just picture how absurd this would be for someone born of God to keep on sinning. Ezekiel 37 is one of the most fascinating um, passages in all of the Old Testament. That's the vision, you remember, that Ezekiel has of the, the valley of dry bones. He has this dream or this vision where he enters this um, battlefield in a valley and strewn across the valley floor are the, the, the skeletal remains of the nation of Israel, bleached white in the sun, crunching underfoot. And, and there is absolutely no hope of life. None. Life's not about to happen. These people aren't about to stand up. They're not about to go on the march. It's not happening. But there is a God in heaven who is powerful and who is merciful. And he commands his prophet Ezekiel to prophesy over the bones. And so Ezekiel obeys. And he listens. And there is this rattling of bone as bone comes together and reconstructs and sinew and flesh cover. And now these corpses look a lot better than they did a moment before. But Ezekiel says there's still no breath in them. There's still no life in them. And so God commands Ezekiel to prophesy again. To prophesy to the breath, which is a symbol of the Spirit of God. And so from the four winds of heaven, the breath of God comes into these remains, into every corpse and makes them alive. And they stand up on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now imagine, as that army goes to march, every single one of those soldiers who represents the people of God is animated by God in heart and soul and mind and strength. They have the life of God by the Spirit of God in them. They belong very clearly to God. They're alive in Him. Their heart, soul, mind, strength is for Him. Now just imagine one of those soldiers all of a sudden doing a quick about face and charging against God. Ah! I was about to run, but I remembered I can't run because this thing is not attached to my hip. I mean, it would be absolutely absurd for that one to take up his sword against God and fight to the death, which is what the sinner does. The sinner fights against God to the death. He is opposed to God. It's just an impossibility, isn't it? You would never, you could not imagine one animated by God with the life of God turning against God with their entire being and fighting against him to the death. That's why John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. He has God's life in him. Final point. Part 2, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, I think that this is the echo or the uh, same kind of punch 
as verse 7, but just from the opposite perspective. John said there, verse 7, that the one who practices righteousness is righteous as Christ is righteous. That is, the one who practices righteousness is like him. Here he is saying the one who doesn't practice righteousness is not only not like him, but not of him. Going back to uh, that whole conflict in the Middle East, do you remember the day when, when the people of Baghdad pulled down the statue of Saddam Hussein? And there was just, I, I was kind of surprised because it was a brazen act of defiance against Saddam Hussein who had just been displaced. So it, it was a big deal. And, and you could have thought at that moment, well, they're not on his side. They must be on our side. And some of them may have been. But it's quite possible that some who engaged in that celebration, the pulling down of that statue, weren't for him or for us. They were on their own side, a third side. A lot of people, a lot of people think that there's like a third side. They would say, I'm not of the devil. I'm not necessarily of God. I'm not like the world. I'm pretty moral and upstanding. But I'm not for God either. I, I'm going this third way. I'm on third side. Kind of like neutral territory. It's impossible. There is no third side. There's only two sides. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil. You're either for God or for the devil. With God or with the devil. Of God or of the devil. Only two sides. Who is talking like John today? What, what preacher, what church is standing up like John today? What congregation is going out to the lost with this bold and blunt of a message? I know we want to tone things down, but this is the word of God. Either of God or of the devil. Test yourself. Test yourself. Who do you belong to? And whose side are you on? Now listen. I know that so many people, Christians, have a very fragile conscience. And when they see words like keep on sinning or making a practice of sin, they say, I make a practice of sin? And I... I'm guilty personally of pride and selfishness every day, multiple times a day. Isn't that making a practice of sinning? Isn't that keeping on in sin? There's a huge difference between what I'm talking about and what John is talking about as making a practice of sinning. You see, the people of God, when they go to God in prayer and confess their sins, Say, God, I've been proud again. I have sinned against you again. And they have a godly sorrow for what they have done and how they have thought. The people that John is talking about, they go on in sin indefinitely without that godly sorrow. And many sinning completely indifferently. They don't care that they're sinning against God. They are going to do their own thing and crown their own head and set up a rival throne and a rival kingdom. And they're satisfied with that. Believers aren't satisfied with that. No true believer will live that way. 
So we can be guilty of great sin, like David was. But David repented. Peter was guilty of great sin against God. He denied knowing Christ. But Peter wept bitterly that night that he'd sinned against his Lord. And he repented. That's the difference between believers and unbelievers. And yet, let's be honest with our hearts. And let's continue to hold up our hearts and souls and minds against the standard of the Word of God. And trust in Christ. Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the plainness of your word. Lord, we want to tone things down. Thank you that you never do. You want us to get it. You don't want us to be deceived, led astray. So I pray, Father, that everyone here would get it, that there would be no one deceived. And I pray, Father, that you would pour out your grace on every soul so that we all truly belong to you in Jesus. Do a great work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.